1: Welcome to World Footprints Radio,
2: the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio.
0: Hi, everybody. Thank you for joining us today on World Footprints Radio. It's a wonderful day to travel and leave positive footprints. We're your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and today we're going to take you to a brand new place, and we take you generally to places where nobody else does, as a leader in socially conscious and responsible travel. And if you're joining us for the first time today, thank you so much, and sit back and buckle up.
2: Thanks, dear. And that brand new place that we're going to visit is Norfolk, Virginia, the cultural, commercial, and culinary center of Hampton Roads one of the world's great natural harbors. If you haven't been to Norfolk, you're in for a surprise. From its rich history to its dynamic urban waterfront, Norfolk is filled with surprises at almost every turn, and we're going to share some of those attractions with you today. We'll visit the city's leading cultural attractions, such as the Chrysler Museum of Art and the Attic Theater, a center for African-American culture. We'll go on board the Battleship Wisconsin as we visit Nauticus. A naval museum on the Norfolk waterfront. And Dine at Dumars, an American culinary treasure whose founder gave us the waffle ice cream cone at the 1904 World's Fair. And we'll make a few stops in between to give you a feel for this gem of a city in the mid-Atlantic region of the United States. We welcome your comments at any time about anything that we're doing. Email us at comments at worldfootprints.com.
0: And, of course, if you want to contact us or have a question or sign up and follow us in real time on our social networks, you can do so from our website, worldfootprints.com. We're always happy to hear from you, and certainly we're happy to serve and uh, make sure that your travel experience is great. Now sit back and relax as we explore Norfolk, Virginia, the city by the sea.
2: Before Sir Walter Raleigh arrived in the Hampton Roads area in 1584, Norfolk was the home of a Native American tribe known as the Chesapeans, who built a great city named Coke near what is now downtown Norfolk. By the time the first settlers reached the area in 1607, the Chesapeans and Skeacoke had been destroyed by Chief Powhatan. We begin with our guide who gives us insight into Norfolk's early history. Much of which transpired along the banks of the Elizabeth River where modern Norfolk stands today.
3: By the time those settlers from colonial Jamestown came down in the early sixteen hundreds, however, the Powhatan tribe had defeated the Chesapeakeans and was the main tribe in the area. This was actually under the advice of a soothsayer to so the Powhatan chief, who told him that strangers would be coming from the east to come and take over their land. And, of course, they went ahead and attacked the Chesapeakeans, thinking those were the strangers. And we all know the English came over and fulfilled that prophecy either way. Now, one of those early settlers from England was Adam Therogood, who came to the city in 1622 as an indentured servant. When he worked off his servitude, he became a leading citizen in the area, being elected to the House of Burgesses in 1636 and actually giving Norfolk its name in 1637 after his hometown of Norfolk, England.
0: Much of that history took place near what is now known as Town Point Park, which connects the new Norfolk, as you'll see in the Waterside Festival Marketplace, and the old, as reflected in the Freemason District, one of the most historic sections of Norfolk located along the harbor front. And as an aside, the Freemason has a wonderful restaurant called The Freemason, which is rumored to be a favorite of Rush Limbaugh when he's in town. No sightings of Rush on this trip. Now let's learn more from our guide about The Freemason District, just northwest of Town Point Park.
3: Now we're actually standing in what was the heart of Adam Thoreau Goods Norfolk right now. It was right here in this area, spanning about three blocks between Butte Street and College Place. You can find houses and museums that go back as far as the 1700s. It was granted to a parish in 1686, and it wasn't until 1734 that it was sold to merchants and developed into, as you can see, a mostly residential area. Um, They've kept a lot of the details of early Norfolk. We have the wrought iron fences, brick sidewalks granite curves and further down you'll see the cobblestone roads as well. Now here is one of the houses that I wanted to point out. It is the Taylor Whittle House. It was built as early as 1790, although the construction wasn't finished until 1802 when it was bought by Richard Taylor for his family. It was passed down from generation to generation all the way until 1972 when it was donated to the Norfolk Historical Society. Now just a little more on the architecture, I said we're going to be uh, going over a little bit of that. This is the federal style. It has a lot of Georgian influences. It has a nice line of symmetry, Palladian windows, which is the flat bottoms and the arch tops. We have a Greek-style pillar at the front and here at the back with the porch. And then we have a frieze, which is the horizontal band, that so goes all the way around the house. And uh, now it's home to the Junior Leagues of Norfolk and Virginia Beach and the Norfolk Historical Society. So we're going to head across the street and we're going to point out one more historic home.
2: Like the Taylor Whittle House, now the home of the Norfolk Historical Society, the Freemason District is filled with many historic structures dating from the 1800s many of which have found new uses, such as the Freemason Abbey Building, which Tanya referenced earlier. Built in 1873 as a church, it's now a restaurant and tavern bearing the same name.
0: Another such building that has found a new life is the 1840s Carriage House that once housed horses, but now serves diners, and today is known as Omar's Carriage House. I had a wonderful opportunity to enjoy a meal there and can highly recommend it Now let's go inside Omar's with her guide to get the story of the place beloved by the wife of General Douglas MacArthur for its pecan pie.
3: And as you might imagine, it is exactly what it sounds like, a carriage house. In the 1840s, it served a large mansion that faced Freemason Street and housed all of its horses, sleighs, carriages, and equipment. That mansion was owned by Captain John L. Roper and bought right after the Civil War. It was demolished in the early 1900s, and the carriage house was just left idle for more than a decade. One of his granddaughters decided that maybe this little building would make a very good tea room, and she started up a nice, quaint restaurant that was known to be frequented by artists and celebrities, including Mrs. Douglas MacArthur, right? Yep. <laughs> and so that, the restaurant itself opened in um, the 1940s, if I uh, am saying that correctly. And you can see that it was definitely a stable, you can see the stable doors. The second story was actually a hay loft. When you go inside you're going to see a hole in the middle of the ceiling where they lowered the hay down to the horses. Now this tea room lasted for several years until about 1974 when uh, local liquor laws allowed um, alcohol to be served more freely. For about four years in 1974 it was turned into a night spot for liquors and sandwiches that didn't last very long. In 1978, it was turned back into the carriage house and returned to the original menu. And Omar, the current owner, bought it in 1998. And the cool thing about Omar is he is, he had, his mother is from Morocco. So he brings a Moroccan flair and that's actually what we're going to be trying is a traditional Moroccan chicken bastille inside. Bastille, B-A-S-T-I-L-L-E.
2: After the break, we'll explore Norfolk's historic Ghent neighborhood, home to the Chrysler Museum. Um, in 1971, Walter Chrysler of New York and Provincetown,
4: the son of the uh, founder of the Chrysler Motor Company, who had been collecting art since the 1930s, suddenly decides that he's going to locate his entire collection
2: here, and take you to Dumars, an American culinary treasure in the heart of Ghent.
1: I would say we have three different eyes, depending on what you're looking for. We, we uh, It's our barbecue barbecue if you're looking for something
5: limeade
1: we uh we sell more limeade than we do Coca cold uh in our ice cream, cream
2: next on the world footprints radio
6: hi my name is jeannie i am from Fiji.
5: i love listening to world footprints radio
1: biotech is a publicly traded company that has created the first biotech social network
2: founded by dr kevin buckman The company has built a unique platform that will allow biotech research to become open source for the first time in history. A breakthrough company in the biotech industry, Viratech is publicly held, meaning anyone can become a shareholder of the company. The trading symbol is Vira, spelled V-I-R-A. More information about Viratech is available via Yahoo Finance. Just type in the ticker symbol V-I-R-A.
0: Hi, I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick.
2: And I'm Ian Fitzpatrick.
0: A few years ago, we decided to leave our respective legal practices to live a more purposeful travel life and help others
2: leave positive footprints. World Footprints was born and was quickly recognized for its award-winning journalism. We've covered events from the Olympics to a Titanic expedition, and we've discussed conservation, environmental, and public diplomacy initiatives.
0: Join us for award-winning radio and visit our website, worldfootprints.com, for daily travel deals and comprehensive travel information. Hi, my name is Eva. I'm from Fiji, and I love listening to World Footprints Radio.
2: And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick.
0: Welcome back. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. The next stop on our Norfolk Travelog takes us to the Ghent District, a suburb built entirely within the city just west of downtown. The combination of garden-style town planning and a unique, y shaped creek from the Elizabeth River gave Ghent a unique style that made it popular with Norfolk's elites, who were drawn to the stately homes along the tree-lined streets and creekside of the stylish neighborhood at the turn of the 20th century.
2: After a post-Second World War II decline in the neighborhood, Ghent has seen its fortunes turn as it has become the artistic culinary and cultural center of Norfolk and the entire Hampton Roads region. Today Monticello Avenue is the heart and soul of cultural Ghent with its restaurants, galleries, shops, and theaters to serve its decidedly urbanite residents who live in the apartments and condos that give the area a big city feel.
0: While Ghent is home to many cultural attractions the Chrysler Museum of Art stands out as a world-class collection thanks to the generosity of automotive heir Walter P. Chrysler Jr. and his wife Jean, a Norfolk native who was instrumental in bringing the collection to the city in 1971. Now, let's go inside the Chrysler with the museum's chief curator, Jeff Harrison, who will show us all the artistic treasures, and no, not
4: cars. The Chrysler Museum um, dates all the way back to the early 1930s, not always named the Chrysler Museum. Initially, it was known as the Norfolk Museum of Arts and Sciences, much more modest building, much more community impact, Uh, a very small collection. Um, It was primarily a collection of um, natural history displays, dioramas, stuffed animals, local waterfowl stuff, that sort of thing. Um, In 1971, Walter Chrysler of New York and Provincetown, the son of the uh, founder of the Chrysler Motor Company who had been collecting art since the 1930s suddenly decides that he's going to locate his entire collection here. So overnight, we went from being a small provincial uh, community museum to a museum in possession of one of the great mid-century collections of European and American art, tens of thousands of objects, paintings, sculpture, works on paper, um, glass, phenomenal glass collection, which we'll we'll see towards the, the end of things. We'll go upstairs first. Um, silver, everything you could possibly name uh, in one fell swoop lands on our heads, at which time we renamed the museum the Chrysler Museum. Um, Walter Chrysler's name is also on the, the, one of the symphony halls, one of the performance halls downtown, uh, Chrysler Hall. Um, we've expanded since then. We had a major renovation in the mid-1980s, um, at which point the, um, the footprint was made symmetrical. We went out in that direction to match the wing uh, uh, already established in that in that direction, um, and then wrap the entire new facade in um, limestone to match the original Florentine building out that way. Um, the original building from the 1930s is essentially just that sliver, first and second floor, right there. None of that, none of that, none of that, none of that, just a little piece in the puzzle that then grew and grew and grew and grew to 240,000 square feet. So it's a real it's a real change. The museum was was previously in Provincetown, the artist colony on Cape Cod. Um, and he was fairly happy there, but the the, um, the town fathers really weren't giving him the kind of financial support that he wanted. He wanted to, to expand the parking lot. He wanted this. He wanted that. He was in an old Methodist church, I just didn't, and he sat at the door collecting money, and welcoming people, um, but they wouldn't give him any money to expand. So he decided he was going to go on a kind of national shopping trip, and he went from Oregon to Maine, Portland, Oregon to Portland, Maine, down to Texas, interviewing 40-plus Museums. He had a collection in search of a museum. We had a building in search of a collection. The the key to all of that was Jean Chrysler, Jean Outland Chrysler, his wife, who was from Norfolk, and she basically uh, 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 managed the deal and got it here. Changed everything. The second floor is devoted primarily to painting and sculpture with a few decorative arts galleries. It runs clockwise around the atrium, starting there with medieval art, uh, going into later uh, 17th, 18th century French and Italian art. American art begins to kick in over on that side of the second floor, and then finally into the Impressionist wing and then up through early modernism. Walter was in New York uh, and in Provincetown, in the 50s and 60s, at just, in just those years when Pollock and Rothko and de Kooning and all the rest of them were beginning to create you know, a, a genuine American post-war school of avant-garde art, and he was collecting it. So we have great things, remarkable things, huge things, many of which we cannot show because right now we lack the space. Um, in the next few years, we're going to expand on either side of the building out that way, which will allow us to show more contemporary art and more historic art. So when you go back in here toward the photography galleries, keep in mind, I think the only thing up is a Rothko and maybe a Jack Torkoff. That's it. Here's a couple of Rothko's, Torkoff, um, and then there would be a Pollock, there would be you know, a Hoffman, and, but they're all sleeping. But what I did was put together um, a show drawn completely from our collection. And we do this um, regularly because we have more than 4,000 European and American photographs. We have a large daguerreotype collection. We have a large collection of um, Civil War images. In fact, the uh, Smithsonian is putting together um, a show on, I can't remember, was it Gardner? I can't remember. But they're borrowing a good many uh, from our collection to go up to Washington in the next year or so. And so I thought I would kind of mix things up a little and talk about the nature of portrait photography in the United States from the time of folks working as daguerreotypists here all the way up to the here and now and kind of blend things together, not so much chronologically but thematically, Um, starting in here with a section on friends and family, um, defining family as something very broad. Uh, um, not simply you know uh, by virtue of a marriage contract, but also by virtue of com- commitment and longevity um, um, and making it as diverse and democratic as I possibly can to reflect the here and now so but one of the things I saw over and over again was the similarity across across generations the similarity of sympathy and image, for example, over here where we have these wonderful daguerreotypes of brother, daughter, or kindred spirits, or here, two freedmen, here, um, dating all from the 1850s. And then this extraordinary thing from 2005, where you've got basically just two friends again. So, 19th century image, a very contemporary image, but it essentially remains the same. That The things that people want to tell about themselves to those viewing them, doesn't seem to change that much. Now, I don't have any Facebook stuff in here, so and I, I, you know, I, that's how I ended the thingy, I think, what did I say, how would you choose to produce, uh, portray yourself now in the age of Facebook? But I thought it was a neat thing um, um, just to get people involved in it and to begin to think how they would present themselves to others, whether to family members, or and in fact how they would define themselves. Would they define themselves in terms of relationships? In the next room, by what they do? In the in the room beyond that, whether they feel a member of a larger community or not, or whether they have a political issue uh, um, that stands at the center of who they are. This is kind of an intro wall where I tried to get as many single figures as I could, looking pretty much directly out, um, both from the past and the present, to kind of represent a cross-section of of everybody who is essentially in our boat and has been in our boat uh, uh, since the word go. So that's kind of how I did that one. Then in here, uh, I am what I do. I decided in here to deal with, with images, both um, uh, historic and present, that dealt with um, vocational portraits. Um, people who identify themselves uh, by their, uh, the work that they do, the activity that they perform. Um, almost always, well, in most cases, historically, it's been a man image I am what I do. I, I had a struggle here to find to find earlier images of women as I got up into the 20th century. It was easier to find women in the workforce and actually defining themselves in that way um, during the '30s they begin to appear of course, suffrage comes um, in the early 20th century, but uh, this was a lot of fun, and what I discovered in the meantime was a whole group of Downtown Norfolk images of various businesses that were shot, this fellow, um, oh God, we don't even know who he is, that's right, who just simply in 1919 went from one shop to another up and down Granby Street and photographed the proprietors. And I thought that was just tremendous. Apparently that's an unusual thing uh, um, for uh, a community of our size to have done um, in those early years. Starting out again with a daguerreotype, uh, a young carpenter, Americans over and over and over again define themselves by what they do. Right? Finally in here, something I call joiners and loners, the idea of, uh, of your identity being subsumed in that of a larger group, or you present yourself on, in, the, in the obverse as someone who stands aloof from that, and I thought things like the Mary Ellen Mark here were just right right up that alley, so are you know, the extraordinary Larry Clark images over there. Clark's in the Hide Seek Show, I think, in, uh, in um, Washington right now. Um, and then on the other side, something, something a little deeper, a little more profound, I hope, where um, one of the things I discovered um, looking through these images is there are a group of, of, of portrait images in which people present themselves through text, um, either a sign uh, or a group of signs or something in the background that identifies themselves or an experience that they've gone through. And it is, it is a, uh, um, um, a life-defining experience or, or demand. And so I put a, a few of those in here, um, including uh, uh, this one by Ernest Withers. I don't know if you all are aware of, uh, of the, uh, the amount of coverage Withers has gotten recently. Um, Because he was working, who was he working for? Was he working for the CIA or something? He was infiltrating Mm -hmm. um, um, the civil rights movement um, the whole time that he was documenting it. So I thought that was really rather extraordinary. So um, uh, here, Holocaust survivors, civil rights um, participants, and then over here, uh, Vietnam vets. Visiting the Vietnam Wall, using the text of the wall behind them or their signs to identify themselves. Um, but I'll show you where Curious George is going to be, and that's coming from the Jewish Museum. They've done a uh, uh, they've organized an exhibition that that uh, brings together um, not only eighty original drawings for the books, the various books that Margaret and H. A. Ray did together, you know, as, as um, a story writer and illustrator, um, but they tell the story of the Rays and the Rays. Uh, Um, had a pretty harrowing um, early adulthood when they were in Paris, Uh, both of them Jewish, of Jewish descent, born in Germany, honeymooning in Paris, decide to stay, and then the Nazis come in. So they have to flee, and they flee all the way down to Lisbon, they go to Rio de Janeiro, and then ultimately to New York, all the while making drawings. And what this show um, presents is a kind of parallel between curious george's adventures always in trouble always saving the day always needing just one head one one moment ahead of disaster and the ray's own journey they're basically drawing their own biographies into those children's stories and that's going to be the kind of dual premise of the show so it should be a lot of fun
2: i don't know about you dear but after touring the chrysler museum i could go for a meal
0: Well, I've got the place just for us, honey. Let's head over to Monticello Avenue and have a meal at Dumars, best known for its barbecue, limeade, and the waffle ice cream cone. The waffle ice cream cone was invented by Abe Dumars at the 1904 World's Fair in St. Louis. Dumars is a Norfolk institution, and... Abe Dumar's great nephew, Thad Dumar, continues a family tradition as he shares with us today.
1: My name is Thad Dumar, and my great-uncle, Abe Dumar, was credited with inventing the ice cream cone in 1904 at the St. Louis World's Fair. He was a traveling salesman, and during the summer of that year, he was selling uh, uh, paperweights. And so he was at the St. Louis World's Fair selling paperweights that year. The World's Fair ran about six months. So he was always hustling something, so he's looking for his next, uh, the next fad to carry him through the next season, the next thing to sell, the next thing that he could put. And so he'd watch what the other vendors were selling for, for, for new ideas. One night, he was in the uh, food section, and he's watching an ice cream man who's gotten ready to close his shop down because he's run out of dishes to serve his ice cream man. Up until that time... Ice cream was served on wax paper on a paper plate, and you you ate the the ice cream out of it and threw the the paper away. Now nearby there was a man using a single waffle iron, which is quarter size of this machine. He was making a thin waffle, letting it cool hardened like a cookie and putting cream on it and selling it as a dessert. So while the, the waffle was still hot, my great uncle went up to the waffle man and took one of his hot waffles and rolled it up in the shape of a, a cornucopia, suggested to the ice cream man that they combine their operations so that they could stay open and and call it an ice cream cornucopia. And that's how the cone was born. So for the rest of the fair, when he wasn't selling his paperweights, he was making waffles for the ice cream man, they combined their operations, and instead of selling a dessert for two cents, which was the uh, the cookie and ice cream for one cent, combine your operations, sell for five cents. That's what they did. They are very successful at the World's Fair. So my grand uncle knew he had a good idea, but he wanted to experiment with it. So he took that single waffle iron over that fall and winter. He timed it out, and he figured out that the way he could mass produce it and make some money using it was to put four waffle irons together so that while three are cooking, he can roll one. So he designed this machine that that we still use today. Using this machine, you can make 200 uh, 200, uh, desserts an hour. So, he knew he had a good product. He had his, uh, had his system down. He opened up his first stand at, at Coney Island in the spring of 1905. had a hard time getting started because uh, it was something new and people just weren't into it. So, he, uh, he hired models to walk up and down the boardwalk eating the cones. That's how he got things started. So, he got his prototype up and running. His prototype stands in Coney Island. He knew he had a good... Uh, A good gimmick, and he was just looking for something to carry him through the next year. But he ended up running a chain of stands that went all the way from Coney Island to Jacksonville, Florida. He would move a little further south by train, had this machine replicated, he'd get a stand up and running. Uh, contract out with the local ice cream manufacturer, he'd build the stand with his brothers, get the stand going and uh, bring in a brother or cousin to run it. And so he had his own job creation machine. Eventually, he put his whole family to work managing these stands. In uh, 1907, he came, to Ocean, uh, he came to Norfolk and specifically located Ocean Butte Park, which was an amusement park on the Chesapeake Bay. And Ocean View Park ran from the, 19, um, from the 1880s until about 1980. So he operated there. And Ocean View Park was not only uh, centrally located to the East Coast, but it was also their best location. And so at Ocean View Park and in the Norfolk area, eventually my great-uncle, Abe, managed his entire uh, chain. So he's an Ocean View. Uh, my granddaddy was a specific manager of that chain, and his, his name was George. So George ran the uh, local operation, but my great uncle was back and forth up and down the coast. Now, our all-time biggest selling day was in 1925. My granddaddy sold 22,600 cones in a single day. So now they had several stands around the park. So they had seven stands were in, but still 22,600 was a big, a big, big day. And they were selling for a nickel apiece. So my granddaddy had his first thousand-dollar day. He talked about the rest of his life so this is at Ocean View Park in Norfolk now we ran there from 1907 until 1942 uh, uh, okay, so we're running strong at Ocean View Granddaddy's doing well but in 1933 uh, we took, the Norfolk area took a major uh, hurricane hit and the park was largely destroyed the man who owned the park rebuilt it but he rebuilt it in uh, uh Uh, He didn't have enough money to rebuild it to his former standard. Also something that happened in 1925 which affected business at the park was Miami Beach. The the train to Miami or the uh, railroad uh, finally extended their lines to Miami and so up until that time Norfolk was the southern resort for folks who lived in in New Jersey and New York and once Miami opened up it hurt the Norfolk area so Ocean View is definitely on the decline. So the hurricane comes in 1933, my granddaddy uh, sees the writing on the wall and uh, he branches out to this location. He opens up his first stand at this location in a building which was closer to this corner over here. Of course the the road was only a two-lane road then, but he adds sandwiches to his menu so he can operate year-round. So uh opens up here in nineteen thirty three. I mean I'm sorry, spring of nineteen thirty four. Maintains his operation in Ocean View, but branches out here. Uh, nineteen thirty five we took another major hurricane hit. Two major hurricanes in two years, and the man really didn't have enough money to do much of anything now. So Ocean View just was on the was on a steady decline now. So my granddaddy made the right move. So it operated here year round. So he always had revenue coming in as opposed to, I six months a year. He just kind of hung on through the winter and tried to make it to the next season. Anyhow, so in 1949, my granddad, because Norfolk was growing, Norfolk grew through World War II, tripled in population. So in order to service uh, the local area better, he tripled the size of his building, built this building behind the old one, which would have rested right back on that corner. And uh, uh, we're in the same building today. It's a 1949 Grand A design and built this building. So here we are today.
2: Dumars is the place to enjoy the best in American comfort food as recognized by the James Beard Foundation. No trip to Norfolk is complete until you've had a barbecue sandwich, limeade, and a waffle cone from Dumars, as Thad tells
1: us. And if you look on the menu now, I, I put on there. You know, we're grinding; we're still grinding our own beef, I mean, We're still making our own barbecue. Uh, you know, but they they reversed course in the sixties and began to advertise. This is what we're doing. We're doing all this stuff here. So, and now, of course, nobody does anything in house, and so it is a huge selling point for us. So. What's now, that's it.
5: Menu,
1: right? I would say we have three different items, depending on what you're looking for. We, It's we, uh, our barbecue. Barbecue, if you're looking for something limeade, we uh, we sell more limeade than we do coca cold. Uh, and our ice cream cone. If you, if somebody came here and they wanted the bang, 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 that's what I would get. A barbecue, a limeade, and ice cream cup. Thanks for coming
0: along Up next, we'll take you to the cultural heart and soul of Norfolk's African-American community, the Attucks Theater.
5: The Attucks Theater was built in 1919. It was built for the African-American population because at that time we could not go into downtown Norfolk for plays and such events.
0: And we'll visit the Battleship Wisconsin as we stop at the Nauticus on the Norfolk
7: waterfront. Well, you, uh, once you're on a ship, you... You form a kinship with with it, and you you become very possessive of it, and you want to see it kept at the best.
0: Next, on World Footprints Radio. Hi, my name's Jennifer Jones, and I'm from Glasgow in Scotland. I love listening to the World Footprints Radio show online.
2: World Footprints Radio is an award-winning broadcast and leader in socially conscious travel. Hosts Tonya and Ian Fitzpatrick bring you entertaining and informative interviews with well-known celebrities, newsmakers, authors, and industry professionals, from environmental leaders like Bobby Kennedy Jr. and David Rockefeller Jr., to conservationists like actress Stephanie Powers and director Ken Burns. Tune in to hear travel journalism at its best. Visit unique places from around the world and stop by the worldfootprints.com website for comprehensive travel information including special daily travel deals. Visit the Galapagos Islands, meet polar bears in Canada, ship wine in northern Italy, explore the Hawaiian Islands aboard a luxury yacht, and stand face to face with China's terracotta soldiers. Explore the world on a journey of a lifetime with World Footprints Discovery Tours. These tours give a unique view of the world in an intimate, small group setting with the freedom to immerse yourself in local culture, learn, and make new friends along the way. Book early and save. Visit worldfootprints.com and look for Discovery Tours to begin your next adventure today.
3: Hi, my name is Anna. I'm from Romania. Make sure you don't miss the World Footprints Radio every Tuesday.
2: You're listening to World Footprints Radio, awarded as the best travel audio podcast by the North American Travel Journalists Association. Here's Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back. i Ian Fitzpatrick. Now that we've toured again on our Norfolk Travelog, we're going to take you eastward to the historic heart of the African American community, located at the intersection of Brambleton and Church Streets, one of the oldest thoroughfares in Norfolk. Not only there will you find the Martin Luther King Jr. Monument, but nearby, the Attic's Theater, dedicated to the first patriot to die during the Boston Massacre, Crispus Attic's. Long the source of pride since its inception in 1919, the legendary Attic's Theater reigned as the Apollo Theater of the South, showcasing such legends as Cab Calloway, Duke Ellington, Mamie Smith, Nat King Cole, and Red Fox. Priscilla Fuller of the Attic's Theater shows us around.
5: It's seat 625. Back in the day that was sufficient, but right now it is considered a small a small venue. Come on in, promptly curtain down for you. This is the original fire curtain that was here when they opened the theater back in 1919. It was restored and as I was explaining to Aaron, we really don't bring it down that much because it is very gentle and it is ripping. But as I stated earlier, the theater opened in 1919. Um, Movies, all kinds, 25 cents they had like a couple of events a week, twenty five <laughs> cents each, which was a great price. Um in the thirties it closed down and turned reopened as the Booker T Washington. And they had basically the same thing, talent shows and things like that. And in the nineteen fifty it was brought by a clothing store. And the lobby was used as a store and the theater itself was used for storage. So they kept, clothes, and that was until when they brought, when the clothing store, store brought it in the 50s, they had to sign an agreement that it would not be used for a theater for at least 20 years. In the 1980s, uh, the clothing store sold it to the Norfolk Re- housing Rehabilitation, um, NHRA. NHRA came into partnership with the city and the CACC, which is a nonprofit, and decided they wanted to reopen the theater as a theater. So in the 1990s, um, they began having fundraisers and collecting money. The estimated restoration fee was 4.2 million. It ended up costing over 8 million. Christopher Attucks was, he was an African-American runaway slave, and he was the first person to die in the Boston Massacre. And that's why they chose, he was actually half African-American, half Indian. And that's why they chose him. If you see that figure laying down at the foot of the soldiers, that represents Christmas Attics. But the Attics is known as the oldest building that was designed, built, paid for, and operated by African-Americans. Harvey Johnson was the actual architect. He was 25 years old when he designed the building. The Attics Theater was built in 1919. It was built for the African-American population because, at that time, we could not go into downtown Norfolk for plays and such events. So they felt it was the, the Twin City Amusement Corporation, which consists of businessmen from Portsmouth and Norfolk. And they got together and came up with the idea of building a building, not only for the theater, but we'll see upstairs. It was used for office space and different things like that. And it was used for reform. They would have meetings. Churches would have. It was just a community building for the African American community. When they applied for the historic tax credits and stuff, they had to keep some of the, as much as the original. They had bookkeepers, tax, tax accountants, lawyers, all uh, businessmen in the Norfolk area. They had like 21 offices. I don't know where. I can <laughs> say it was 21 offices in the building, but I'm sure they most of them now restrooms.
3: The Twin City
5: Amusement Corporation. They owned like seventy percent of the stock, and they ended up having to sell stock ten whopping dollars for share stock. They had to pay two fifty upfront, five dollars in six months later, and sixty days later, and the other remaining two fifty 120 days later. These are some of the artists that appeared at the attics. Mm-hmm. And what it is, they bring in under-the-radar acts, blues, indie, and it's more or less they being discovered along with the theater being discovered. So they call it Discovery Series. Um, and we have like eight, eight to ten of those during the whole year. And, I mean, we rent out to, we have weddings, we have um, plays, we have just, if someone has something and they just want to put it on, mm-hmm. they can rent the theater and do that. Mm-hmm. But uh, under the stage, they have a part place where the wood is where the artists would sign off on it. And so we have pieces of wood with artists and children. When the attic was a mainstream of the community, when we had no other place to go, it thrived. The balcony, uh, as I tell people, if you're over 5'8", and you're over 125 pounds, you don't want to sit in the balcony. Back in the day, they were shorter and small, and this Balcony is a tight fit. My husband is 6'2", and we came to our first show before I started working here,
2: and he wanted to sit in the balcony. That was the last time he wanted to sit <laughs> in the balcony. While the attics remains an integral part of the cultural scene in Norfolk, today it serves as an educational center for Norfolk's youth, training the next generation of dancers, musicians, and actors, as Priscilla explains. We also have a summer arts program for the community,
5: and we bring them in 90% on scholarship. And at the end of the camp, they put on a performance. So we're trying to make it part of the community again, which is hard to do, but...
0: Is there one event, performance, or, or that just remains in the memory of those who uh, came to this theater in, in the early days? Is there, is there some, or is there something that the community still embraces about this, uh, this theater back in the day?
5: I really, like I said, we, we're trying to reach out to the community. You may, I have people that come in and say, oh, yeah, my mom attended. It, I think it's just the fact that there was somewhere they had to go. I mean, it might not be a specific event. It might not have been a specific movie. But, I mean, this was like a movie house, entertainment house. They had uh, some people report, uh, referred to it as the Apollo of the South, which... We try to get away from that. But, I mean, they would sure have experiences like to come here and watch entertainment, watch the neighborhood entertain them, which is a great experience even today.
2: As we head south to downtown to the waterfront where we began at the outset of the show, the Attics Theater rejuvenation is part of the larger rejuvenation that has taken place in Norfolk for more than two decades. The redevelopment of Norfolk's waterfront turned out to be an almost immediate success. Town Point Park at the Norfolk Waterfront created a pleasant and inviting new public space at which Norfolkers gather for festivals like Harbor Fest or for viewing the dramatically reshaped skyline or people watching.
0: The Waterside Festival Marketplace created a new space for entertainment and shopping in downtown. And Nauticus, the National Maritime Center, was constructed on a former pier adjacent to Town Point Park. And that's our next and final stop. Nauticus is an exciting, interactive science and technology center that explores the naval, economic, and nautical power of the sea and is home to the battleship USS Wisconsin, one of the largest and last battleships ever built by the U.S. Navy. Let's go on board the ship that defended America during World War II. Uh, I'm here standing on the USS Wisconsin in Norfolk, uh, Virginia, with uh, Doc Shoup, who was uh, a member or a a crew member of the USS Wisconsin back in the day. Doc, uh, thank you so much for joining me.
7: Well, I I certainly appreciate you coming aboard. We like to have visitors come come in here all the time and uh, show them what we can.
0: Now you have a, a wonderful history with the USS Wisconsin. Uh, tell us when uh, you started serving, and uh, and and why today you're volunteering on board.
7: Well, yes, I uh, my history on the ship here was very brief because uh, I came aboard here in 1947 as a, a reservist, but I was on here for training in the medical department, and so therefore I. Uh, Came on board here to uh, get some more ad- additional training in medicine, or shipboard medicine as we call it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and so you really uh, you didn't see battle on
7: the ship, per se. No, I did not. No, no, I was not here during battle time. This was in '47, which was after the war, and it was being used as a training ship. Mm-hmm.
0: You know I just saw a uh a introductory video and uh, a lot of uh um your fellow sold uh sailors um expressed a lot of they were very emotional when this ship retired to uh norfolk tell why is that
7: well you uh, once you're on a ship you you form a kinship with the with it and you uh you become very possessive of uh, and you want to see it kept at the best. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. And and uh, and so after you um, you finished your medical training here, your, your shipboard training, where did you go then?
7: Uh, at that time, I went back to my reserve unit. But uh, then it was. This was an organized reserve unit, and then when the Korean War broke out, immediately the whole unit was activated to and put back on active duty. And uh, I went back uh, on active duty and decided then that I wanted to make the Navy my final career, and so I sh- switched over to the regular Navy, and I finished out my whole career, my thirty years.
0: Wow, bless you. Now, tell us about the room that we're standing in right now.
7: This is the, uh, called the the wardroom of the Wisconsin, and is where the officers came here and had their meals here. And they they could, uh, could also relax here when they were off duty. Okay.
0: Okay, and I see uh, posters of movies or what have you. Was this kind of a recreational center as well for the officers?
7: Well, they... Yes, more or less there was as much recreation as you can get on a ship <laughs>
0: now, um, as part of the medical staff, um, if you if your ship was under attack, how involved did you or or the medical team become involved in the uh, in the battle itself?
7: It would be all according to what kind of casualties you had. Mm-hmm. This ward room here could double as a a Ford battle dressing station so that uh, we could take care of the wounded here more expeditiously than we could by trying to transport them down to sick bay, because that's forward and two decks down, and you'd have to traverse ladders down there to get the personnel down there. And if they're badly wounded, it would be almost uh, impossible to get a person down there and still preserve his life.
0: Throughout your uh, career with the Navy, is there one or two events that really just stick in your in your memory, or have transformed you in one way or the other?
7: Well, I have to say uh, my time on a destroyer, in which I was the ship's dock on there, uh, operating uh, without a, a physician present, and also. Uh, of the time I spent in uh, Vietnam, uh, flying around in helicopters, spraying, for, spraying mosquitoes in order to uh, control malaria amongst our troops.
0: Oh, you know, I, don't, I think that would surprise a lot of our listeners that how, uh, how involved, actually, and, and important the medical staff was. I mean, it, it's certainly important from uh, the, the preservation of uh, life, or for the preservation of life, but uh, it really, in some ways, you were on the front lines, too.
7: Well, yes. Uh, what we were doing there was uh, we'd t- to send teams forward on the, on the ground, and check the different lagoons and uh, rice paddies and things of that type where the mosquitoes would be breeding to find out what the level of infestation was there. And then we would go in ahead of a push, what we call where the Marines were going to go in forward areas. We'd go in ahead of them so that we could wipe out the mosquitoes that might be carrying malaria and help preserve their health.
0: Wow, incredibly important. Um, throughout, uh, I know you, you recently retired. Well, how long ago did you retire, Doc? And, oh. and uh, you're not really retired because you're working on well, board the USS Wisconsin.
7: I actually retired from the uh, from active duty in 1974. But then after that, I went to work in civilian life as a uh, health inspector for the city of Portsmouth. And then I retired from that again.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And now you're working aboard the USS Wisconsin.
7: Yes, as a a, a volunteer. Oh, bless.
0: Well, thank you so much for your years of service and and your dedication and sacrifice on behalf of us. Not only have attractions such as Nauticus and the battleship USS Wisconsin dramatically transformed downtown Norfolk's waterfront skyline, Norfolk continues to surprise as it transforms leaving a bold impression for the first time a returning visitor, a point-driven home in our closing conversation with Aaron Filarecki of the Norfolk Convention and Visitors Bureau. Aaron, welcome to World Footprints.
6: Thank you. How are you, Tanya?
0: Great. And, uh, you know, I tell you, this time in Norfolk has been wonderful, full of a lot of pleasant surprises, from the history to the rich culinary scene. Give us an idea, give our audience an idea of... Uh, the, really, the, the, the richness of uh, the historical uh, relevance of, of this area. Well, Norfolk is 400 years old, and um,
6: the English settlers came through uh, in, the, in the 1600s, passed Norfolk, their mistake, went on to Jamestown. Um, but, you know, we have a, uh, our African-American history here is, is truly uh, unique and amazing because Norfolk was the last port um, the slaves came up through through North Carolina, the Great Dismal Swamp, and then they got on boats and schooners and ships here in the port of Norfolk to go on to Boston, Baltimore, Ontario, Philly, the northern states. So we played a major role uh, in the Underground Railroad that, that most people are just now starting to realize because uh, we've had more of an interest in in, uh, in, in cultural tourism. So we're really catering to, to those sorts of folks that are interested in,
0: in that. Um, and I think what some people may find surprising, you know, Norfolk, Virginia, south of, of the uh, Mason-Dixon line, you know, the south. And um, from what I've learned on this trip and certainly from what you've shared, um, this actually was – Somewhat of a safe haven for uh, many of the slaves who traveled north. Yes, it was, and like I said, it was. Most people
6: don't realize that we played a, a major role. This was the last city in the South before slaves were free, and and that is it. You know, that's a very big deal. We just last year we came uh, created a waterways to freedom map online and brochure map. It's a self guided tour that. Uh, tourist visitors can take 24 stops along that tour and it, it just depicts our role several house or several um, indentured ser- servants lived and uh, families that help house slaves so there are different uh, spots along this trail that it's roughly a two and a half hour tour that uh, visitors can come in and take and I, and I don't know of any other city in the south that has done put this much research mm-hmm. into uh, a project like this we're very proud of it and it's it's been very successful with with visitors uh, and we encourage everyone to come and and experience it while they're here it's amazing it's truly really
0: amazing now where can they find the uh, the self-guided map of this tour uh, the map is online at visitnorfolktoday.com
6: and we also have brochures at our downtown office on main street
0: and our visitor center in ocean view um um, you know, another another surprising thing for me was um, how diverse this cu- uh, community actually is, this town. I mean, there's 250,000 people. It's a very small community. Talk about some of the diversity in this area.
6: Absolutely. Well,
0: we are home to the world's largest naval base, so that draws in a, a, a
6: variety of folks from around the world. But we also have five universities here. We have the Culinary Institute of Virginia, Eastern Virginia, uh, Virginia Medical School, Norfolk State, Virginia Wesleyan, and Old Dominion University. So that also uh, draws in a variety of folks. And we're so close to Williamsburg, Jamestown, the Outer Banks of North Carolina. All of these cities are literally an hour, hour and 15 minutes drive. D.C. is is three hours. So we just have people come in. You know, it's great. NATO is also headquartered
0: here. So, yeah. Yes. hmm I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, of course, another surprise. <laughs> yes. Yeah, the surprises around every cor- <laughs> corner here. <laughs> so yeah. Now you know you uh, you mentioned the uh, Culinary Institute. You have a, a school, a culinary school here, and that um, is a wonderful segue into one of my favorite topics. Um, and another fantastic surprise: the culinary scene in this little town. I mean, I'm I'm blown away. A, a, a lot of the restaurants that we dined at. Um, New York, uh, quality, you know, five-star or three-star Michelin rankings. I mean, they, I mean, very comparison to, uh, to, to some of the, the top restaurants around the world.
6: Thank you. And, and, and I do agree with that. I have traveled to a few of the
0: other larger cities. We
6: do have a excellent culinary scene. And, uh, in a month, we're kicking off culinary tours in Norfolk. it's needed, it, it's come to that time where we just need to put something together, tours for folks, because we have had so much interest in our restaurants. We're offering two tours, one of Grampy Street, Norfolk's Restaurant Row, and then another tour of a historic section of Norfolk called Ghent. Uh, on each stop there are roughly five to six restaurants, and visitors will experience a dish that is what the restaurants think is the, is the best of what they have to offer. So uh, it's very affordable, family-friendly, and it's, they're both walking tours. Each restaurant is within one to two blocks of each other, so it's very easy and easy to maneuver to each
0: one. It's uh, roughly three hours. Great, great uh, adventure for visitors. Absolutely, and and um, I know that uh, Norfolk seems to have taken a, a page out of the playbook of New Orleans. There's always something going on here. <laughs> Talk about some of the upcoming festivals, uh, the other one. We have just over 100 festivals
6: that take place each year. Most of take place on the waterfront in Town Point Park along the Elizabeth River. And actually most of are free, um, very family-friendly. A few that we have coming up are Harbor Fest in June, um, fireworks, food, live music, tall ships from all over the world, sail down the Elizabeth River. We have a parade of sail where families can watch uh, on Saturday for a few hours, watch the, the tall boats come in. We have Bayou Boogaloo, a Cajun food festival in July. We have a, a biannual wine festival, in May and
0: October. So those are a few of our, our most popular, I would say. And you have something huge coming next year called uh, Opsail. Talk a little bit about that.
6: Opsail, uh, we are one of five, I believe, cities along the East Coast. And there are uh, tall ships from NATO countries that come in and sail along the Elizabeth River. It coincides with Harbor Fest in June of next year. Other cities that are, are hosting events are Boston, Baltimore, New York, and New Orleans. And then Norfolk has a lot of festivities. That's June 2012. OPSAIL
0: uh, stands for Operation SAIL. And, and um, a lot of the uh, NATO countries are participating in this, I understand. Yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. Um, for somebody living outside, uh, you know, for, for us in Washington, D.C., we're three and a half hours away by car, uh, for some of our audiences around the world, what would you say to them uh, if they ask the question, why should I come visit Norfolk? Norfolk is the cultural center of this region. We have a
6: little bit of everything. Uh, we have an opera, ballet, there are plays, the culinary scenes we touched on. There's a little bit of everything. But also, it is the location is perfect. As I mentioned, you, the founding of our country is only an hour, 45 minutes away. The beautiful islands of the Outer Banks, hour and 15 minutes. You can get to the mountains, wine country of Virginia. So it's it's very centrally located. You can stay here and take day trips to other areas in the region uh... we have an international airport train wonderful train system here Um, so it's just a great a great spot to after you explore Norfolk for a couple days perfect place to rent a car or
0: you know explore other parts of the region and and I understand this area too is doing a lot to preserve its cultural heritage talk about some of those initiatives absolutely Um, well,
6: what um, we've been doing a lot of in the past twenty years there's been a lot of renovations and buildings downtown that were um, sort of falling apart and've we've, we've really uh, put a lot of efforts into making our downtown look nicer. We have several new hotel properties um, the college downtown is expanding and uh, so yeah a lot of a lot of uh, we have a new light rail system coming through. I didn't touch on that. That's great. Several stops through downtown. You know, you won't even have to use, you know, your car, rent a car. Uh, there's a stop at the the, beaut- the gorgeous mall, and then of course the Harbor Park, the baseball stadium. A stop at the medical school. So we.
0: Making it a lot easier for visitors to maneuver our city. <laughs> Being from D.C. and having to exactly. fight the Beltway, I appreciate that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> oh, Erin well, Philarecki with Visit Norfolk. The website Visit Norfolk today. In N-O-R-F-O-L-K, but <laughs> that's my my Southern uh, accent. But uh, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much. It's been such a fun trip, and I'm glad you enjoyed every minute of it. I just We hope you enjoyed our Norfolk tour, as we certainly did, and our good friends from Norfolk. And we look forward to seeing you again soon. We do thank you for sharing this time with us today, and as always, we look forward to seeing you each and every week. If you want to connect with us in real time in between shows, or sign up for a travel deal alert in our newsletter. You can do so from our website at worldfootprints.com. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we'll see you on the air again next week. And until then, we wish you blue skies and purposeful travel that leaves positive footprints one step at a time.
5: Hi, guys. My name is Sandy Best, the Sandy Best from Lake Louise. Where's Lake Louise? It's in Alberta. Alberta's in Canada, Banff National Park, natural beauty. The only place you should go with is World Footprints Radio. They spend their time looking at those special places that are not tourist traps, that are not thousands of people. For the best on the planet, go with World Footprints Radio.
2: World Footprints Radio is a presentation of Travel and On Media Productions, LLC. All rights reserved.